If you have a Bible, if you would turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17. 1 Samuel chapter 17. On a Sunday morning, I've never preached this passage before. The start of the new year seems as good a time as ever for us to refocus on what is our purpose and what do we exist for. In the bulletin, you see that I have written down as a title, Why Does the Church Exist? The Bible teaches us what our purposes are, but the Bible's a big book, and sometimes we may uh, forget that, and it's good for us to renew or reset our resolve at the start of a new year to make sure we are focused. I want us to do that today. I'm thankful for Matt McBroom and his preaching last Sunday as he looked, uh, took us to Philippians chapter 3 on the importance of knowing God and pressing on to know him and striving ahead to know him. We want to know him in this new year. Our church's mission statement is a good one. It's a simple one. It's on the front of your bulletin. It's written on the walls downstairs. It's at every entranceway where you come in. Both God. And it says, we exist to proclaim Jesus while loving and serving both God and people. We have a purpose. We understand our purpose from God and from the scriptures, and we know that we exist, our very existence, why we are here, why we live where we live, why we work where we work, and why we gather at this location, 413 Fairdale Road, to worship together as a group of people, to gather for prayer meetings as we do, to study his word as we do. We have a reason and a purpose. We exist for proclaiming Jesus. We want other people to know him. We want people to come to faith. We want people to believe. We want people to feel that they have sinned against God and therefore turn to him because not he's pushing them away, but he's drawing them close. And while we do that very thing, while we are focused, laser focused, I hope, while we are focused on being about Jesus, sharing and talking and preaching and going, we are doing that in a manner that reflects the character of God. We love and serve. We love and serve. We want everybody that we come in contact with to be loved and served. We want everybody to know what God is like rightly. We don't want to misrepresent him. We want to faithfully represent him. We exist to do this in hopes that in everything we're doing, in everybody we talk to, in every place we go, in every way we move, that there would be a door open for us to speak, talk out loud, say words about Christ who loves with a bigger love than anybody's ever known, with a love where he would sacrifice himself under the will of God, our Father in heaven, die on the cross for the sins of the world, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have eternal life. We exist to be about, to love God, and in being about Jesus, we will do it in a way where we are aiming, striving to love God and love people, serve God and serve people. That's why we exist. And I've preached on this many times. I think we do this at the start of the year every year. But today I want to do it from a very, very familiar story, but I think perhaps it's not so much of a familiar Bible passage. I bet everybody in the room has heard of David and Goliath, right? We know the story. Every time a powerhouse uh, basketball or football team plays the little small guy, it is referred to as a David and Goliath matchup, isn't it? We know about David and Goliath. But much, much fewer of us have actually read the story. It's a long story in the Bible, and there are a lot of details there that aren't covered in the story. And so today, since we all understand that preaching is about explaining the word of God, preaching is not about giving a good speech. 
them to know. Teaching is about somebody who cares for those that are listening, explaining what God wants them to know. Preaching is not about us being distant or disconnected from each other and yet me just trying to say something that will inspire you or empower you. Preaching is when pastors, through prayer and devotion, seek to explain this book to the people so that they will trust in Christ as Lord and Savior. This morning, I want to preach to you from 1 Samuel 17, the story of David and Goliath. But it's a long one. It's a really, really long one. And it is difficult to preach long passages. I don't want us to be here all afternoon. I don't want us to miss lunch or miss ball games or whatever else. But I do want us to understand the beauty and the power and the truth of the story of David and Goliath in such a way that you and I would read this Old Testament story that's familiar and yet embrace it like, wow, that, that's where I'm at. That's what's going on inside of me. That's who I want to be. I want to be used in that way so that I'm existing for the proclamation of Jesus while loving and serving both God and people. So we're gonna read a lot today. I have been praying before today. I've been praying as I sat right there that you all will be able to focus today better than you've ever focused. I know that we are easily distracted, right? But I hope today you can focus because we're going to read uh, nearly 50 verses. Read with me, if you will, beginning at 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Sokah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokah and Azekah in Ephesdemim, And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. Now, if you don't know much about the Old Testament, Israel is the people of God, and the Philistines are another people that do not believe in God, okay? The Philistines do not believe in God, the true God, and the people of Israel are the people of God. That's what we've got, okay? We're about to have a big battle here. If you like war, this is the passage for you. Verse four. Verse three. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Y'all, there's a lot of discussion about what that height actually means. Some people, mean, some people think it means he was six foot six inches tall. Some people think it means that he was about nine feet tall. And some people, Matthew Henry says, this means he was about 11 feet tall. Regardless of how tall this guy was, he was bigger than everybody else, okay? He was huge, known as a giant. The Bible in several places speaks of giants, though people and people groups and family lines that were just massive and much bigger than everybody else. Goliath is one of those. Verse five, he had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. He had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron and his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? If you're not servants of Saul, choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. This is the setting, folks. You got this giant, the champion, as he's described, Goliath, 
the biggest and baddest of the Philistines, and he would come out to the edge of the border of the, of the valley. Remember, Israel was over here, and the Philistines were over here, and he'd come out, and he would get there, and he would just challenge them, and he would speak boldly and brashly and say, anybody up for this? That's what the word champion meant. It didn't mean he was just good at what he did. It, didn't mean, it meant that in a one-on-one setting, man-on-man, that he would always win. That's what the word champion is meaning here. That when two people go at each other, he comes out victorious. That's why he's described as champion. And that's what he was calling for, another one-on-one battle. Is there anybody on that side of the valley that would step up here and go one-on-one? And there were high stakes here. If y'all win, then y'all get to have us. And if we win, then we get to have you all. Y'all would surrender to us, and we would surrender to them. That's what he's challenging. It's a rather frightening scene. It's an intimidating scene because the biggest and baddest of men is offering the challenge. But that's the setting, verse 10. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, verse 11, you hear, or we read, when they heard these words. This isn't the main point today, but this is a word for our day. Since when were the people of God driven by words other than God's? God had spoken to his people. God speaks to his people. Here we have being led, God, the people of Israel, and the king of God's people, Saul, being led, being afraid, being intimidated by this guy's words. May that not be you. There are a lot of voices today. There are a lot of messages today. We hear a lot of things. May you be dialed in. May you be tuned in. I love the videos that the IMB puts out. I had not seen that one, but I loved that video. Did you not? In the midst of all that is going on, we know what God has said. We know where he's going. We know what he expects of us. We know that he will be glorified. We know that he is the victor. We know that he reigns. We know that he gives strength and presence and comfort and power to all those who hope and trust in him. I loved that video. Don't miss here in verse 11 that it was those words that were affecting and influencing and determining Saul and the army. That should not have been the case. Verse 12, now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem and Judah. Now here's the other main character, right? David and Goliath. This is the first mention of him in verse 12. Named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. Just a small little piece there. David's dad, Jesse, is not at battle. He's too old for war now, so he sent out his three oldest. Just a small little piece for you to remember there. The three, verse 13, the three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the name of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David, notice this, went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. Verse 17, and Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these 10 loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. 
Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. All and they and their brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse his father had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line and shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. Let's stop there. That's the first 22 verses in the story of David and Goliath. My first point for us this morning is, number one, we are to be busy with our responsibilities. If you're taking notes, write those down. If you're a kid that has the listening page, here's your first point. We are to be busy with our responsibilities. Almost always when recalling the story of David and Goliath, nobody goes through these first 22 verses and notices the detail that God's holy, true word gives us about David. David is the one who will fight in a few verses later against this giant, the smallest and the most um, seemingly unlikely to fight the biggest and strongest. He is the one, David is. But before we get into any of that, we find a David who is small but is disciplined, is responsible, is working, is devoted, is not distracted, is not lazy, is not making excuses. We cannot miss this. He is busy with his responsibilities. Notice all the details of this. Before we get to this passage, David is a servant of Saul. He helps him, he advises him, he encourages him, he plays the harp for him to call him down. The king Saul was kind of like an egomaniac and he would often overreact and he would get so stressed that he would get angry and he would get angry and he would do things that he shouldn't be doing and he would not trust God often. He was a bad king. So David was one of his servants that would come in and settle him down. When Saul would not be focused, David would, would be he working as a young man and just play the music to get Saul to calm down. He worked for Saul. But not only did he work for Saul, but he also had lots of responsibilities at home, and that's what this is telling us. He worked for his dad. His dad would send him to do things. In this passage, we have him taking cheese. What a neat little element to the story. Hey, take some cheeses down there to your brothers who are in the war fighting. Make sure they get their cheese. Take some bread. Take some of this grain to them too. They need to be sustained in this battle. Take them. And the Bible tells us that when he was home, he was also a shepherd. He took care of sheep. This passage even tells us that before he could even leave to do all of those responsibilities, he had to line up a backup to take care of his sheep because no shepherd leaves the sheep. There's all kinds of detail here, isn't there, in these first 22 verses. Before you get to a battle of a small David against a giant Goliath, you find a young, faithful David who is bearing many responsibilities. And it is in that very position of his life that God then opens the door for him to be used in a big way. I want to encourage you that in this year, with all that could be going on in your life, with all of the distractions and burdens that we carry even now, that you would be reminded this morning to get busy with your responsibilities. Don't allow this life and the discouragement and the negativity to cause you to lose focus, 
May it cause you to put your glasses on, put your gloves on, put your hand to the plow, make sure you can see clearly and you go. Set your eyes upon Jesus, tune out the noise, and get busy with our responsibilities. This is the calling of God, this is the calling of Scripture. It's possible for us to be so distracted that we're living in nothing but discouragement. It's possible for us to be so distracted and discouraged that we're so far away from what we actually want to be. And yet David, who was about to enter into this mighty battle, this famous battle, this well-known battle of David and Goliath, is here busy with his responsibilities. This passage is teaching us that David was not at home looking for a way to be great. David was not at home thinking, how can I change the world? And what can I actually do that would hit such a home run and make make such a splash in this world that everything would be huge and that we would have such an impact? He wasn't. This passage teaches us that the man after God's own heart, the king on the throne that would eventually lead to Jesus, the king who is known as the greatest king in the history of Israel, David, King David, was a little guy with lots of little responsibilities, but he was all over it. The Bible teaches us to whom much is given, much is required. And if you're faithful in small things, then you can be faithful in big things. And you will not be faithful in big things if you cannot be faithful in small things. All of this is taught in the scriptures. And we see David delivering bread and cheese to the men who were out there fighting. We see David caring for Saul, the king, who should be out there fighting, who's scared at one single soldier's words. These are armies of over a 1,000 men, and one guy's words is intimidating the king of the people of God. He should have been busy. He should have been busy with his responsibilities. David was obeying his father. He was caring for the sheep, He was doing many things. I want to ask you here this morning, could you identify your responsibilities? Before we get into uh, the things that are really, really out there that we are responsible for, we all have several. We have to be a family person. We have to love our wives and serve our children. We have to pay our bills. We have to work our jobs to earn the money to pay our bills. We have to love our neighbors. We have to take care of those. Doesn't James chapter 1 teach us truly to care for widows and orphans? Doesn't James chapter 1 also teach us that we are to be focused on keeping ourselves unstained from the world? Doesn't Matthew chapter 5 teach us the good, salt and light in this world, making it a better place, being the good? Doesn't Ephesians 2 teach us that God has good works already planned for us, but we're supposed to go and walk in them? Doesn't the Bible teach us in 1 John that we're to not love the world or the things of the world? So we're to be disciplined and controlled and self-controlled, making sure. I haven't even gotten into what your jobs are and the heavy things that you uh, carry as responsibility, but those are just a few. We are to be busy with our responsibilities. Matthew Henry says, business, meaning being busy, is a good antidote against melancholy. What a good word, right? Sitting around, lonely, pity partying, getting distracted, is often overcome by doing what we do. And when you find yourselves being responsible, perhaps it is then, then, that God shows his will for you and his plan for you and opens the door for you to do it. I remember 
that J.J. was born on January the 2nd of 2008. We were told that he was going to be born in 2007. He came a totally different year later. We went to the hospital on December the 30th of 2007. He was born on January the 2nd of 2008. We just celebrated his 14th birthday last week. It was just a few weeks before that, though, that Val was working over at the seminary. It was a cold December day. She got, distra- she got distracted on the road somehow, and the car in front of her stopped, and she crashed head on, eight and a half months pregnant, tail ended a car in the back. It was scary for us. It was our first baby. You know how it is on your first. You worry about everything. Val stayed the night in the hospital, and thankfully, everything checked out okay. Well, we're not sure JJ's okay, but <laughs> the doctors told us that everything was okay. The night after we came home from the hospital, so this is December 2007, Val sent me out to Walmart on a late night run. I've made about a million of those over the years. It's slow in 11, 12, or COVID because now Walmart closes. Walmart used to be open all night, so whether it was 10, 11, 12, or 1 or 2, and we needed something, Val would make me get there. I was coming back from Walmart one night late and in the dark, and as I was driving down New Cut Road right here, and I came under the underpass of the Gene Snyder right down here, I was coming back late. I was ready to get home. I was probably tired. At that time, I was still working at UPS night, so I was always tired. I came through the underpass, and I was trying to get home, running the errands, probably having just picked up milk or something like that, and I passed a car that was stuck under it was on the road, but under the underpass, and I just passed a car. And you know, there's cars always on the side of the road. This time, this was in the very center of the road. There were no lights on at all, zero lights, no tail lights, brake lights, front lights, no lights, no hood light on the inside, pitch dark there. And I drove past, and I kept going. And as I drove past, I looked over, and there was somebody sitting in that car. Very strange, very strange. I thought, what in the world? I was hurrying to get home, but my conscience wouldn't let me keep going. There was a pitch dark car, no lights at all. So I got past the on-ramp, almost over to where that hotel is, and I pulled over on the side of the road. And I got out and I started walking over there, and I was scared, I'll be honest. There's a car, dead black, sitting there in the center of the road. Cars are zooming by, and there's somebody sitting in the car. Why would they be sitting in the car? I didn't know. So I started walking over toward the car, and I had a far walk, and I started walking over toward the car. Once I started getting near the car, the door opened, and a lady started to come out. That was kind of weird to me. Why was she waiting there? Maybe she was scared herself. I tried to yell to her, but it was kind of loud, and she started coming around. She was coming to me for help, and right when she got to the very front of her headlight, a drunk driver going as fast as he could drove full speed into the back of her car. She was standing right at the front headlight. He hit the car so hard that it just launched her car. Her car hit her so far that it just launched her from here to that wall. As I was standing probably 10 feet away, she flew across the intersect. Dude, I grabbed my Snyder. I watched her skid across. I didn't know what to do. I grabbed my phone, immediately called 911. I told them what was happening. They hurried up and they got there. Within no time, they were there. While I was standing there just kind of wondering what was going on, her cell phone, which was even further down the road, started ringing. So I answered it. They said, Julie, where where are you at? I said, "Uh, this is not Julie, and I went on to explain. Long story short, I'll never forget that day going, why'd I even stop? Should I have stopped? What if I just went on home and not gotten involved with that? 
been back with my family, or I didn't have kids at the time, but back with my wife. But I was glad that I stopped, weren't you? Aren't you? I was able to answer that call. I was able to talk to that lady. I did run over there and pray with her. I do not know. They never called me back. The police talked to me and got all the stuff they needed. I don't know if she survived or not. It was a pretty bad thing. The guy was super drunk. He, dropped, he, jumped, he, dropped, he uh, jumped out of his car, was very drunk, and started saying everything in the world, and the police got him right away. But I've often reflected upon that night. That was 2007. I was supposed to just go to the store. I was just doing what I was supposed to do, go to the store and get that. And before I knew it, I found myself in a pretty intense setting. Life is like that, folks. We are Christians living for God. The truth matters to us. Helping people matters to us. Doing the right thing matters to us. And this is the very spot we find little shepherd boy David in, busy with his responsibilities when all of a sudden he hears what comes next. R.C. Sproul, speaking about this busyness, says this, Christians are sent into the world of fallen humanity by their Lord to witness to it about Christians are to exist in his kingdom and to serve its needs. But Christians are to do so without falling victim to its materialism, its lack of concern about God and eternity, and its pursuit of pleasure and status above all else. In short, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. We are to be busy with our responsibilities. Look back with me now at verse 23. David, busy with all of his responsibilities. And then here we go to the next part. As he talked with them, this is David talking with those people, his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. Now notice verse um, 16 says that for 40 days, this is what's been happening. Every morning, Goliath gets up, gives this big, bold speech, intimidates the mess out of God's people, and nobody uh, volunteers, nobody accepts the challenge. He goes back, he comes back out that evening, and he does it again. And for 40 days, day and night, some 80 times, he has mocked them and spoke to them, and, their wor and his words have intimidated them. But busy with his responsibilities, David is there passing out bread and cheese and making sure they're okay doing what his dad says. And this time, for the first time ever, David hears that giant say that. And look at the end of verse 23. And David heard him. Don't you miss for a second that whoever the author is of 1 Samuel is doing a play on words here from verse 11 to verse 23. In verse 11, Saul heard those words, and he was wimpy and scared. In verse 23, David hears those words, and we're about to see how it affects him. Verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? Give him his come up to defy Israel, and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches, and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? David asked, what's the reward? What's gonna happen to the person who goes out here and defeats him? 
But notice that you can see here already in verse 26 why David is so bothered. He sees this as a reproach against Israel. This is a bad thing for Israel. This is a bad thing for God's people. This should not be happening. David's bothered by this. My first point today is busy with our responsibilities. And my second point here today is that we are to be bothered by godlessness. This is a hard point for us to hear. But I pray 2022 would be filled with you being bothered by godlessness. In every area of your life where there is just filth and disgust and no lack for God and no reverence and no fear of God and no desire for him to be honored, that it would bother you. I'm not gonna say here today what we should do in being bothered, but I want you to be bothered by it. I want us to have a desire to be like him and for things to represent him well, and I want us to be bothered and convicted when things aren't understanding that it is our lives that are supposed to glorify God. We exist for this very purpose. David is bothered that there's a man out there talking down against God and his people, that there's a man out there speaking wrongly of them and challenging them. So he asks, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the approach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God. Verse 27, and the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. Y'all, this is a tough part of the story. It's always left out when you tell it or when you read it, jealous of him. Brother's mad at him for even caring. It's horrible. He's jealous of him. He said, why have you even come down here? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? So condescending, so disgraceful, so ugly for an older brother. If you are an older brother here today, let me remind you, you should be the biggest fan and the biggest encourager and the biggest supporter to every single one under you. You should want your brothers and sisters to be better than you, smarter than you, prettier than you, more successful than you because you are teaching them and inspiring them. This is a horrible, ugly scene where Eliab, in front of many others, is talking down to his younger brother that just delivered his cheese to him to keep him strong in battle, just delivered his bread to him. Why are you even here? Sounds like teenagers that are privileged. Doesn't sound like men of God who are serving with conviction to represent the truth in battle. It's an ugly scene, and I'm thankful that David had more backbone to go and run off and cry and to give up and to act like my brothers don't like me. What a sad thing it is for him to say those few sheep in the wilderness. This passage makes it really clear that David carries a lot of responsibility. And David is not just running around with little responsibility. He says, I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. That very statement there from David's brother is a clear sign of how wrong his heart is. Because the Bible describes David as a man after God's own heart. God who knows the will and purpose and the desire of every single one of our hearts. God is the one that says that David's heart is in the right place. His brother tries to say he has an evil heart. He does not. For you have come down to see the battle. Verse 29. And David said, like, like a little brother would, what have I done? What have I done now? Wasn't it just a word? You so upset about me asking a question? I just heard this Goliath screaming out things, intimidating all you. It was just a word. Why are you so worked up, big guy? What have I done? 
same way. Verse 30, and he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. This is how little brothers are, isn't they? He wasn't distracted. He entertained Eliab for just a minute, but he was getting on his nerves, and he was not focused on the main thing, and so he turns. He says, hey, what's going on here? And he just quickly moves on to the next person. I like this scene. Verse 31, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul. Finally, somebody tells the king, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. What a message. Hey, I realize that's a big, intimidating giant, but don't let your heart fail. Don't you become a coward now. Don't you give up now. Don't you bow out now. This is how, this is how I feel about the church and, and Christians in 2022. Is it easy and smooth sailing as it used to be 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago? I don't think so. But you're going to give up on God who loves you, your Father in heaven, Christ who did hang on the cross and suffer and bleed for us and die for the sins of the world and went to the grave and rose again. Are we going to turn our back on him now? Absolutely not. Don't let your heart fail now. Now is the time for us to renew, set our minds upon Christ, to believe the scriptures, to know that the truth is the truth and the truth does not change. In a world that changes and in a mirror that changes and and everything that changes about us, God does not change. He's the same in 2022 as he was in 1990, same as he was in 1950, the same as he was in 500, the same as he was in this passage, God does not change. Let no man's heart fail him because of you. Look at this. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. Does everybody see that? They're scared. David wants to fight him, and King Saul says, you can't. How encouraging is that from your leader, right? How encouraging is that from your leader? Verse 34, but David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear, and against me I caught a flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, notice this, If you get anything out of this message today, underline verse 37. Your Bible ought to have 37 underlined. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. David was so bothered by godlessness that it led him to do something. And just like this passage is always taken and explained in a way where David comes out at the hero, verse 37 shows us that David is not the hero of this passage. David made clear right there that the only reason he had defeated a bear and the only reason he had defeated a lion is not because he was so good, but because God had worked in him. God had used him. God had given him strength and given him victory. And he believed that the same thing would happen with the Philistine. This had zero to do with the skill and power of David. And this had everything to do with God working in him and David's faith to believe it. The Bible says that in this world we will have trouble, and we are having it, aren't we? But Jesus Christ himself said, take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus loves you. 
He died on the cross for your sins. He took your sin, your shame, he suffered your judgment, your punishment, and he came out victorious on the other side. No matter who you are or what you're going through, you can set your whole hope upon God by trusting in Christ. You can go to heaven, you can live forever, you can have all your sins forgiven, you can be right with God and be his child because of Christ if you will believe. Stop trying to earn it. Stop thinking that if you're good enough, or if you raise your kids well enough, or if you try hard enough, that it'll make an above right. That's not what the Bible says. But the Bible says that you can trust God over and above everything, even today. And David does it. This is a story of faith. This is a story of believing. This is the story of God who wants his people to know, believe me, and I can do anything through you. I will honor my name when you honor my name. I will be victorious. And our church's mission statement is that we exist. We are right here on this street, living in the places where we live, to make God known, to proclaim Jesus, to love and serve. That fuel comes when we are busy with our responsibilities and when we are bothered by godlessness. I'm not the preacher to go on rants for how messed up the world is. We know enough about that. But I do want us to feel like David felt. This world doesn't love God. This world doesn't honor him. They don't realize that he's the one that's giving them every goodness in their life, all the gifts that they have, whether it means they got a lot of money or a lot of strength or a lot of good looks. It's from God. God gave that. Whether it's a good job or nice kids, God gave that to you. And he deserves to be worshipped through it. David was bothered by this Philistine's godlessness. David was also triggered by God's people being scared here. They weren't believing. They weren't trusting. There was no faith here, and he was bothered by it. Matthew Henry says, nothing profanes the name of God more than the misconduct of those whose business it is to honor it. That's me and you. That's this church. That's us who say we're Christians. Nothing. Nothing profanes his name more than when you and I are godless. That should bother us, and it bothered David. Let me remind you, you better get at home, and somebody called him and say, hey, we got some dude over here talking smack. You better get out here. That's not what this was like. This was not a guy here motivated by bravado. This was not a guy thinking, man, I'm the baddest guy and I will beat this. It was nothing like this. This was a man delivering cheese and bread, caring for sheep, serving the king. That's what it was. And he's just there when all of a sudden he hears this giant yelling this out. It's been going on 80 times for 40 days. And David's like, what's that? And he was bothered by it. He was a man of the spirit. He was a man with conviction. He was a man who stood for truth. And he was a man who wanted his life to exist to help people know God. And so when everybody else, literally his three biggest brothers, the entire army, and the king that he served were indifferent to the godlessness, he wasn't. He was driven by being bothered by godlessness. I must do something. I must act here. I must get involved. I don't know what I can do, but I'm going to do something, David felt. Read with me at verse 38. Remember, Saul just told him, go and the Lord be with you. 
Verse 38, then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. And then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. He couldn't wear the armor. It was too big, too heavy. It was too uh, restricting. He wasn't able to do it. Verse 40. Then he took his staff in his hand and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. No weapon other than a slingshot. And I know all of us think of those slingshots that are kind of like this, right? You put a little BB in there, a little rock. It's so much fun to do. The more oddly shaped it is, the more it's gonna shoot like a boomerang, right? You don't ever know what you're gonna hit. And if it's actually like a BB and it's round, you can, you can aim pretty good, but it wasn't one of those. All right, I don't know if that would kill somebody if it hit them right in the forehead or not. That's, that's kind of small. This is a different type of a slingshot where you could get a stone that's like this big and it comes like this and you, you swing it like this and all of a sudden you like that. This is a big rock, a rock that if this hits you in the head, it would do some serious damage. This is a weapon that was really common back then. So I don't want y'all to think like, oh, yeah, right, this guy went to fight with a slingshot and he killed a giant. That's unlikely. No, I want you to think that this was something that he was skilled at. This is something he knew how to do. He knew how to sling a slingshot. He knew the type of rocks to get. He knew how to wind that thing up. He knew how to let it fly. David gathered five and put them in his pouch. Verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, y'all, this is inspiration right here. You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord. Y'all, this is why you read the Bible. This is why you read the Bible, because this is tucked away in the middle of the Old Testament, in the middle of 1 Samuel, right? These little single-verse devotionals never get to this. We had to read 40-some verses in chapter 17 to find that, but man, it's good. You come to me with all those weapons, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, the Lord will do have defied. This day, verse 46, the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. If my first point is busy with our responsibilities and the second is bothered by godlessness, my third and final point this morning is that we are to battle faithfully to represent God. We are to battle faithfully to represent God, and David is. 
Verse 47 says, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. This wasn't the army that won it. This wasn't David so much that won it, but it was God that won it because he used a man that believed. He used a man who was busy with responsibility, faithful in the small things, bothered by godlessness, convicted of sin in the world, and yet walked wanted to faithfully represent God. Verse 48, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. It gets a little graphic after that. I'll let you read it later at home. He's not dead yet, and David kills him. He battled faithfully to represent God. This isn't a passage much on war. This isn't a passage on <clears throat> This is a passage about believing God and wanting to serve him well. Our mission statement says we exist to do that. It inspire us to. R.C. Sproul writes, knowing that God in providential kindness and forbearance continues in the face of human sin to preserve and enrich his erring world, Christians are, I love this quote, please listen, Christians are to involve themselves in all forms of lawful human activity. By acting in accord with Christian values, they will become salt, a preservative agent, and light, an illumination that shows the way in the human community. As Christians thus fulfill their vocation, they will transform the cultures around them. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes, the glory of the gospel is that when the church is absolutely different from the world, she invariably attracts it. Meaning, y'all, we know God. We got a calling on our lives. We are to live for him. And everything in this world that does not represent him bothers us. We are moved by that. We recognize it. We feel that this world is broken and it bothers us. And so we want to do something about it. We don't fight back the way the world would fight back. We don't respond the way the world would respond. We have grace and truth. We have mercy for days. We have forgiveness on top of forgiveness. The meek shall inherit the earth, like the video said. We are peacemakers. We have been forgiven much. We will forgive much. We will labor. We will be patient. We will be self-controlled. We will be humble. But we will battle to faithfully represent our Christ. He loves us, and he is worthy. May we be reminded here today that the church is not a building it is people. It is those who hope in Christ. And may we be inspired to represent him well. This is why we exist. Let's pray. Accurately, heaven, thank you for the story of David and Goliath. God, may we understand it accurately. May we be inspired by this soldier, shepherd boy, David, and his commitment to you. Father, we worship you, not David. While he was heroic, you're the hero. You did it.
Saul knew that David could not defeat the giant. David knew that David could not defeat the giant. But God, you surely could. God, we believe you. We ask for you to forgive us of our sins and strengthen our faith. God, lead us now to trust you, to feel our existence and purpose, living to proclaim Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.